a new object is before him. A new relationship has been established. New desires now fill his heart and new responsibilities claim him. The moment a man truly realizes that he has to do with God, there must be a radical change. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 The call which Abraham received from God required a double response from him. He was to leave the land of his birth and forsake his own kindred. What then is the spiritual significance of these things? Remember that Abraham was a pattern case, for he is the father of all Christians, and the children must be conformed to the family likeness. Abraham is the prototype of those who are holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Hebrews 3 verse 1 Now, the spiritual application to us of what was adumbrated by the terms of Abraham's call is twofold, doctrinal and practical, legal and experimental. Let us briefly consider them separately. Get thee out of thy country finds its counterpart in the fact that the Christian is one who has been, by grace, the redemptive work of Christ and the miraculous operation of the Spirit delivered from his old position. By nature, the Christian was a member of the world, the whole of which lieth in the wicked one. 1 John 5, verse 19 And so is headed for destruction. But God's elect have been delivered from this. Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God our Father. Galatians 1 verse 4 Therefore does he say unto his own, Because ye are not of the world, because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15 verse 19 Get thee out of thy country finds its fulfillment first in the Christian's being delivered from his old condition, namely, in the flesh. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Romans 6 verse 6 He has now been made a member of a new family. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3, verse 1 He is now brought into union with a new kindred, for all born-again souls are his brethren and sisters in Christ. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Romans 8 verses 8 to 9. Thus the call of God is a separating one from our old standing and state into a new one. Now, 
What has just been pointed out here is already from the divine side an accomplished fact. Legally, the Christian no longer belongs to the world, nor is he in the flesh. But this has to be entered into practically from the human side and made good in our actual experience. Because our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, verse 20, we are to live here as strangers and pilgrims. A practical separation from the world is demanded of us, for the friendship of the world is enmity with God. James 4, verse 4, Therefore does God say, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them, and be ye separate. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 17. So too, the flesh still in us is to be allowed no rain. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12.1 Make no provision for the flesh to the lust thereof. Romans 13.14 Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Colossians 3.5 The claims of Christ upon his people are paramount. He reminds them that ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Therefore does he say, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26. The response is declared in They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 5.24 Thus the terms of the call which Abraham received from God are addressed to our hearts. A complete break from the old life is required of us. Practical separation from the world is imperative. This was typed out of old in the history of Abraham's descendants. They had settled down in Egypt, figure of the world, and after they had come under the blood of the Lamb, and before they entered Canaan, type of heaven, they must leave the land of Pharaoh. Hence, too, God says of our surety, Out of Egypt have I called my son, Matthew 2.15, the head must be conformed to the members and the members to their head. Practical mortification of the flesh is equally imperative. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die eternally. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live eternally. Romans 8.13 But he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6, verse 8 By faith, 
Abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. This verse, read in the light of Genesis 12.1, clearly signifies that God demanded the supreme place in Abraham's affections. His life was no longer to be regulated by self-will, self-love, self-pleasing, self was to be entirely set aside, crucified. Henceforth, the will and word of God was to govern and direct him in all things. Henceforth, he was to be a man without a home on earth, but seeking one in heaven, and treading that path which alone leads thither. Now it should be very evident from what has been said, that regeneration or an effectual call from God is a miraculous thing, as far above the reach of nature as the heavens are above the earth. When God makes a personal revelation of Himself to the soul, this is accompanied by the communication of supernatural grace, which produces supernatural fruit. It was contrary to nature for Abraham to leave home and country and go forth not knowing whither he went. Equally is it contrary to nature for the Christian to separate from the world and crucify the flesh. A miracle of divine grace has to be wrought within him before any man will really deny self and live in complete subjection to God. And this leads us to say that genuine cases of regeneration are much rarer than many suppose. The spiritual children of Abraham are very far from being a numerous company, as is abundantly evident from the fact that few indeed bear his likeness. Out of all the thousands of professing Christians around us, how many manifest Abraham's faith or do Abraham's works? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. This verse, read in the light upon which we would fix our attention, is Abraham's obedience. A saving faith is one which heeds the divine commands as well as relies upon the divine promises. Make no mistake upon this point, dear reader. Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Hebrews 5.9 Abraham placed himself unreservedly in the hands of God, surrendered to His Lordship, and subscribe to His wisdom as best fitted to direct Him. And so must we, or we shall never be carried into Abraham's bosom. Luke 16, verse 22 Abraham obeyed, and he went out. There are two things there. Obeyed signified the consent of his mind, and went out, tells of his actual performance. He obeyed not only in word, but in deed. In this, 
He was in marked contrast from the rebellious one mentioned in Matthew 21.30. I go, sir, and went not. John Owen stated, The first act of saving faith consists in a discovery and sight of the infinite greatness, goodness, and other excellencies of the nature of God, so as to judge it our duty upon His call, His command and promise, to deny ourselves, to relinquish all things, and do so accordingly. End of quote. Such ought our obedience to be unto God's call and to every manifestation of His will. It must be a simple obedience in subjection to His authority, without inquiring after the reason thereof, and without objecting any scruples or difficulties against it. Thomas Manton writes, Observe that faith, wherever it is, bringeth forth obedience. By faith Abraham, being called, obeyed God. Faith and obedience can never be severed, as the sun and the light, fire and heat. Therefore, we read of the obedience of faith, Romans 1 verse 5. Obedience is faith's daughter. Faith hath not only to do with the grace of God, but with the duty of the creature. By apprehending grace, it works upon duty. Faith worketh by love. Galatians 5.6 It fills the soul with the apprehensions of God's love and then makes use of the sweetness of love to urge us to more work or obedience. All our obedience to God comes from love to God and our love comes from the persuasion of God's love to us. The argument and discourse that is in a sanctified soul is set down thus, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Wilt thou not do this for God that loved thee, for Jesus Christ that gave himself for thee? Faith works towards obedience by commanding the affections. Unquote. He went forth not knowing whither he went. How this demonstrates the reality and power of his faith to leave a present possession for a future one. Abraham's obedience is the more conspicuous because at the time God called him, he did not specify which land he was to journey to, nor where it was located. Thus, it was by faith and not by sight that he moved forward. Implicit confidence in the one who had called him was needed on the part of Abraham. Imagine a turtle stranger coming and bidding you follow him without telling you where. To undertake a journey of unknown length, one of difficulty and danger, towards a land of which he knew nothing, called for real faith in the living God. See here the power of faith to triumph over fleshly disinclinations, to surmount obstacles, to perform difficult duties. Reader, is this the nature of your faith? Is your faith producing works 
which are not only above the power of mere nature to perform, but also directly contrary thereto? Abraham's faith is hard to find these days. There is much talk and boasting, but most of it is empty words. The works of Abraham are conspicuous by their absence in the vast majority of those who claim to be his children. The Christian is required to set his affections on things above and not on things below. Colossians 3.1 He is required to walk by faith and not by sight, to tread the path of obedience to God's commands and not please himself, to go and do whatever the Lord bids him, even if God's commands appear severe or unreasonable. We must obey them. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. 1 Corinthians 3.18 And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9 verse 23 But such an obedience as God requires can only proceed from a supernatural faith, an unshakable confidence in the living God, an unreserved surrender to His holy will, each step of our lives being ordered by His word. Psalm 119 verse 105 can only issue from a miraculous work of grace which He has Himself wrought in the heart. How many there are who profess to be God's people, yet only obey Him so long as they consider that their own interests are being served. How many are unwilling to quit trading on the Sabbath because they fear a few dollars will be lost. Now just as a traveler on foot who takes a long journey through an unknown country, seeks a reliable guide, commits himself to his leading, trusts to his knowledge, and follows him implicitly, or hill and dale. So God requires us to commit ourselves fully unto him, trusting his faithfulness, wisdom, and power, and yielding to every demand which he makes upon us. He went forth not knowing whither he went. Most probably many of his neighbors and acquaintances in Chaldea would inquire why he was leaving them and where he was bound for. Imagine their surprise when Abraham had to say, I know not. Could they appreciate the fact that he was walking by faith and not by sight? Would they commend him for following divine orders? Would they not rather deem him crazy? And dear reader, the godless will no more understand the motives which prompt the real children of God today than could the Chaldeans understand Abraham. The unregenerate professing Christians all around us will no more approve of our strict compliance with God's commands than did Abraham's heathen neighbors. The world is governed by the senses, not faith, lives to please self, not God. And if the world does not deem you and me crazy, then there is something radically wrong with our hearts and our lives. 
One other point remains to be considered and we must reluctantly conclude this chapter. The obedience of Abraham's faith was unto a land which he should afterward receive for an inheritance. Verse 8. Literally, that inheritance was Canaan. Spiritually, it foreshadowed heaven. Now, had Abraham refused to make the radical break which he did from his old life, crucify the affections of the flesh and leave Chaldea, he had never reached the promised land. The Christian's inheritance is purely of grace, for what can any man do in time to earn something which is eternal? Utterly impossible is it for any finite creature to perform anything which deserves an infinite reward. Nevertheless, God has marked out a certain path which conducts to the promised inheritance, the path of obedience, the narrow way which leadeth unto life. Matthew 7:14, And only ever reach heaven who tread that path to the end. As the utmost confusion now reigns upon this subject, and as many are through an unwarranted reserve, afraid to speak out plainly thereon, we feel obliged to add a little more. Unqualified obedience is required from us, not to furnish title to heaven, that is found alone in the merits of Christ, not to fit us for heaven, that is supplied alone by the supernatural work of the Spirit and the heart, but that God may be owned and honored by us as we journey thither, that we may prove and manifest the sufficiency of His grace, that we may furnish evidence we are His children, that we may be preserved from those things which would otherwise destroy us. Only in the path of obedience can we avoid those foes which are seeking to slay us. O oh, dear reader, as you value your soul, we entreat you not to spurn these words, and particularly the closing ones, because their teaching differs radically from what you are accustomed to hear or read. The path of obedience must be trod if ever you are to reach heaven. Many are acquainted with that path or way, but they walk not therein. See Second Peter 2 verse 20. Many, like Lot's wife, make a start along it and then turn from it. See Luke 9.62. Many follow it for a great while, but fail to persevere and, like Israel of old, perished in the wilderness. No rebel can enter heaven one who is wrapped up in self cannot. No disobedient soul will. Only those will partake of the heavenly inheritance who are the children of Abraham, who have his faith, follow his examples, perform his works. May the Lord deign to add his blessings to this, and to him shall be all the praise Chapter 6 The Life of Abraham Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10
In the preceding chapter we considered the appearing of the Lord unto idolatrous Abraham in Chaldea, the call which he then received to make a complete break from his old life and to go forward in faith in complete subjection to the revealed will of God. This we contemplated as a figure and type, an illustration and example of one essential feature of regeneration, namely, God's effectually calling His elect from death unto life, out of darkness into His marvelous light, with the blessed fruits this produces. As we saw on the last occasion, a mighty change was wrought in Abraham, so that his manner of life was completely altered, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. And turning unto the verses which are to form our present portion, let us first ask and seek to answer the following question. Was Abraham's response to God's call a perfect one? Was his obedience flawless? Ah, dear reader, is it difficult to anticipate the answer? There has been only one perfect life lived on this earth. Moreover, had there been no failure in Abraham's walk, would not the type have been faulty? But God's types are accurate at every point and in His Word. The Spirit has portrayed the characters of His people in the colors of truth and reality. He has faithfully described them as they actually were. Truth, a supernatural work of grace, had been wrought in Abraham, but the flesh had not been removed from him. True, a supernatural faith had been communicated to him, but the root of unbelief, had not been taken out of him. Two contrary principles were at work within Abraham, as they are in us, and both of these were evidenced. God's requirements from Abraham were clearly made known. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. Genesis 12.1 The first response which he made to this is recorded in Genesis 11.31. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Therii his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. He left Chaldea, but instead of separating from his kindred, he suffered his nephew Lot to accompany him. Instead of forsaking his father's house, Terah was permitted to take the lead, and instead of entering Canaan, Abraham stopped short and settled in Haran. Abraham temporized. His obedience was partial, faltering, tardy. He yielded to the affections of the flesh. Alas, 
cannot both writer and hearer see here a plain reflection of himself, a portrayal of his own sad failures? Yes, as in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. Proverbs 27, verse 19. But let us earnestly seek grace at this point, to be much upon our guard, lest we rest, 2 Peter 3.16, to our own hurt, what has just been before us. If the thought arises, oh well, Abraham was not perfect, he did not always do as God commanded him, so it cannot be expected that I should do any better than he did, then recognize that this is a temptation from the devil. Abraham's failures are not recorded for us to shelter behind, for us to make them so many palliations for our own sinful falls. No, rather are they to be regarded as so many warnings for us to take to heart and prayerfully heed. Such warnings only leave us the more without excuse. And when we discover that we have sadly repeated the backslidings of the Old Testament saints, that very discovery should but humble us the more before God, move to a deeper repentance, lead to increasing self-distrust, and issue in a more earnest and constant seeking of divine grace to uphold and maintain us in the paths of righteousness. Though Abraham failed, there was no failure in God. Blessed indeed is it to behold his long-suffering, his superabounding grace, his unchanging faithfulness, and the eventual fulfilling of his own purpose. This reveals to us, for the joy of our hearts and the worshipping praise of our souls, another reason why the Holy Spirit has so faithfully placed on record the shadows as well as the lights in the lives of the Old Testament saints. They are to serve not only as solemn warnings for us to heed, but also as so many examples of that marvelous patience of God that bears so long and so tenderly with the dullness and waywardness of His children. Examples, too, of that infinite mercy which deals with his people not after their sins, nor rewards them according to their iniquities. Oh, how the realization of this should melt our hearts and evoke true worship and thanksgiving unto the God of all grace. First Peter 5.10 It will be so, it must be so, in every truly regenerate soul, though the unregenerate will only turn the very grace of God into lasciviousness, chewed forth unto their eternal undoing. The sequel to Genesis 11.31 is found in chapter 12, verse 5. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Though Abraham had settled down in Haran, God would not allow him to continue there indefinitely. The Lord had purposed that he should enter Canaan, 
and no purpose of his can fail. God therefore tumbled him out of the nest which he had made for himself, Deuteronomy 32.11, and very solemn is it to observe the means which he used, and Terah died in Haran, Genesis 11.32, and compare Acts 7 verse 4. Death had to come in before Abraham left halfway house. He never started across the wilderness until death severed that tie of the flesh which had held him back. But that with which we desire to be specially occupied at this point is the wondrous love of God toward his erring child. I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3 verse 6 Blessed, thrice blessed is this, though the dogs are likely to consume it unto their own ruin, yet that must not make us withhold this sweet portion of the children's bread. The immutability of the divine nature is the saint's indemnity. God's unchangeableness affords the fullest assurance of his faithfulness in the promises. No change in us can alter his mind. No unfaithfulness on our part will cause him to revoke his word. Unstable though we be, sorely tempted as we often are, tripped up as may frequently be our case, yet God shall also confirm us unto the end. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9 The powers of Satan and the world are against us, suffering and death before us, a treacherous and fearful heart within us. Yet God will confirm us to the end. He did Abraham. He will us. Hallelujah. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Hebrews 11.9 this verse brings before us the second effect or proof of Abraham's faith. In the previous verse, the apostle had spoken of the place from whence Abraham was called. Here, of the place to which he was called. There he had shown the power of faith in self-denial in obedience to God's command. Here we behold the patience and constancy of faith in waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. But the mere reading of this verse by itself is not likely to make much impression upon us. We need to diligently consult and carefully ponder other passages in order to be in a position to appreciate its real force. First of all, we are told, and Abram passed through the land into the place of Sychem, into the plain of Mori. And the Canaanite was then in the land. Unless a supernatural work of grace had been wrought in Abraham's heart, subduing, though not eradicating, his natural desires and reasonings, he certainly would not have remained in Canaan. And idolatrous people were already occupying the land, Again, we are told that he, God, gave him none inheritance in it, no 
not so much to set his foot on. Acts 7, 5 Only the unclaimed tracks, which were commonly utilized by those having flocks and herds, were available for his use. Not an acre did he own, for he had to purchase a plot of ground as a burying place for his dead. Genesis 23 What a trial of faith was this! For Hebrews 11.8 expressly declares that he was afterward to receive that land for an inheritance. Yet instead of this presenting a difficulty, it only enhances the beauty and accuracy of the type. The Christian has also been begotten to an inheritance, 1 Peter 1.4, but he does not fully enter into it the moment he is called from death unto life. No, instead, he is left here very often, for many years, to fight his way through an hostile world and against an opposing devil. During that fight, he meets with many discouragements and receives numerous wounds. Hard duties have to be performed, difficulties overcome, and trials endured before the Christian enters fully into that inheritance unto which divine grace has appointed him. And naught but a divinely bestowed and divinely maintained faith is sufficient for these things. That alone will sustain the heart in the faces of losses, reproaches, painful delays. It was thus with Abraham. It was by faith he left the land of his birth, started out on a journey he knew not whither, crossed a dreary wilderness, and then sojourned in tents for more than half a century in a strange land. Rightly did the Puritan Manton say, From God's training up Abraham in a course of difficulties, we see it is no easy matter to go to heaven. There is a great deal of ado to unsettle a believer from the world, and there is a great deal of ado to fix the heart in the expectation of heaven. First, there must be self-denial in coming out of the world and divorcing ourselves from our bosom sins and dearest interests. And then, there must be patience shown in waiting for God's mercy to eternal life, waiting His leisure as well as performing His will. Here is the time of our exercise, and we must expect it, since the father of the faithful was thus trained up ere he could inherit the promises. End of quote. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. The force of this will be more apparent if we link together two statements in Genesis. And the Canaanite was then in the land. 12.6 And the Lord said unto Abram, All the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Chapter 13, verses 14 and 15 Here was the ground which Abraham's faith rested upon, the plain word of him that cannot lie. Upon that promise his heart reposed, and therefore he was occupied not with the Canaanites who were then in the land, but with the invisible Jehovah who had pledged it unto him. 
How different was the case of the spies who, in a later day, went up into this very land with the assurance of the Lord that it was a good land. Their report was, The land through which we have gone to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. As it was by faith that Abraham went out of Chaldea, so it was by faith he remained out of the country of which he was originally a native. This illustrates the fact that not only do we become Christians by an act of faith, the yielding up of the whole man unto God, but that as Christians we are called upon to live by faith. Galatians 2.20 To walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5.7 The place where Abraham now abode is here styled the land of promise rather than Canaan. To teach us that it is God's promise which puts vigor into faith. Note how both Moses and Joshua at a later day sought to quicken the faith of the Israelites by this means. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you, and drive them from out of your sight, and ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised you. Joshua 23, verse 5. As in a strange country. This tells us how Abraham regarded that land which was then occupied by the Canaanites and how he conducted himself in it. He purchased no farm, built no house, and entered into no alliance with its people. True, he entered into a league of peace and amity with Aner, Eshcol and Mamre, Genesis 14.13, but it was as a stranger and not as one who had anything of his own in the land. He reckoned that country no more his own than any other land in the world. He took no part in its politics, had nothing to do with its religion, had very little social intercourse with its people, but lived by faith and found his joy and satisfaction in communion with the Lord. This teaches us that though the Christian is still in the world, he is not of it, nor must he cultivate its friendship. James 4 verse 4 He may use it as necessity requires, but he must ever be on his prayerful guard against abusing it. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 Dwelling in tents, These words inform us both of Abraham's manner of life and disposition of heart during his sojourning in Canaan. Let us consider them from this twofold viewpoint. Abraham did not conduct himself as the possessor of Canaan, 
but as a foreigner and pilgrim in it. To the sons of Heth he confessed, I am a stranger and sojourner with you. Genesis 23, 4. As the father of the faithful, he set an example of self-denial and patience. It was not that he was unable to purchase an estate, build an elaborate mansion, and settle down in some attractive spot. For Genesis 13, 2 tells us that Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. But God had not called him unto this. Ah, my reader, a palace without the enjoyed presence of the Lord is but an empty bowl, whereas a prison dungeon occupied by one in real communion with him may be the very vestibule of heaven. Living in a strange country, surrounded by wicked heathen, had it not been wiser for Abraham to erect a strongly fortified castle? A tent offers little or no defense against attack. Ah, but the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And Abraham both feared and trusted God. John Owen said, Where faith enables men to live unto God as unto their eternal concerns, it will enable them to trust unto Him in all the difficulties, dangers, and hazards of this life. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.